Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Cinematics. I'm Ryan. And I'm Mike. And today we're talking about a classic and what is today regarded as a masterpiece of cinema picked by Mike, The Shawshank Redemption. This film was directed by Frank Darabont and also written by Frank Darabont, uh, who is known for writing and directing The Green Mile, The Mist, Season 1, Episode 1 of The Walking Dead, whatever you feel about that. The original concept comes from a short story written by Stephen King, of all people, called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. It was made for $25 million, starring Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, and Bob Gunton, and filmed at the Ohio State Reformatory, almost exclusively, except for some pre-built sets in and around the area. Uh, nominated for, at the Oscars that year, Best Picture, Best Actor in Leading Role for Morgan Freeman, Best Writing, Best Cinematography, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Music, Original Score. Um, but it won none of them. And it also didn't do super well at the time, uh, which we will talk about a little bit, I think, when we get to that, as for the context of it. But for now, Mike, why don't you talk about why you picked this movie and what context it has in your life? Well, thanks, Ryan. So this film came to me kind of early in my life. I didn't, um, I wasn't a big, big, like, movie buff early, early on. That came, it started in my teen years and grew from there. And this is one of the first movies I can say I probably studied. And the, part of the reason is because is I was doing it without realizing I was doing it because I watched it just so many times. And part of the reason I watched it so many times is from what you just mentioned, I think, it not doing that well in theaters. Um, this was like a massive, massive TV movie, like Saturday, Sunday afternoons on more than one channel, but TBS was one of the ones I always saw it on. And yeah, it was broken up with commercial breaks, but that was even better because it's a two-hour movie, so they get like a three-hour chunk of television they could take up to using it. And um, and but it was one of those things that when you were flipping through the channels when it was on, you were watching and you were watching right through to the end. And I, it was one of the first movies I realized that had that command over not just me but like my friend group, and I started asking why why did this why why does everybody like this movie why is it like it was one of the first movies that parents liked but the like their kids like like my friends liked but then my friends parents liked and my brother's group of friends liked and i my group of friends liked and and uh why did it appeal to everybody and and that kind of thing and and to be honest i didn't come to the a true answer till I kind of got into more studying film after, or maybe study when I started studying literature in university um, and understanding story and story and, and myth and, and story structure as to why this movie, I think became it acts as a, as a allegory for so many people's lives. And, um, and so I guess that was, that's kind of the context for how, it, how it came into my life. And yeah, and so it started with a movie rental. It was the most rented movie in uh, 1995, the year <laughs> after it came out in theaters and, and got, did the Oscar run. Um, it So it, it found an audience on home video, which was relatively a new concept that only came around in the 80s was home video. And so this is 95. So this is like 10 years into that 
that new kind of invention uh, um, and uh, or maybe 15 years and uh, and that this is one of the first like this is one of the movies that was saved by home video like it found its audience by kind of word of mouth right this is mm-hmm. like there was internet and stuff but it was at a very very young stage and uh, and yeah word of mouth and then ultimately IMDB and its rating on there is what kind of led to its perpetual success people kept finding it because it was this like universally loved thing and everybody that was seeing it in the early days would like prophesize about it and go and speak the word of it's this ahead movie. of its time it's ahead uh, of its and, time and uh but like they this uh, by by the same standard you have to say that this is probably one of the worst marketed movies of all time <laughs> because how can a movie that is so universally loved have failed at the box office? Like that would be. There is actually an answer to that. There would no, be. I mean, there's a few answers to that. Yeah, but there would be like literally by modern day standards, if you had a movie that was this loved and you didn't like, heads would roll at a company. I would think it's it's a lot to do with the timing. Um, I think more than anything, if you look at what was happening in the '80s and into the early '90s, it was the huge campaign of uh hard on crime and cracking down on drugs and that sort of thing and it was it was actually the violent crime control and law enforcement act was released in the states 10 days before this movie came out and that act was the big like we need to get the criminals off our streets throw them in prison they're all a bunch of animals kind of thing and people didn't want to watch a movie that humanized the people that they were in a campaign against. So I think that that was a huge reason that it didn't do well at the box office. And only later, when people started coming to the realization that, oh, criminals are people, and maybe this act was like worse rather than better for the uh, society, that the movie began to pick up a bit. Yeah, I think you're you're right about that. I think that, but that's, uh, I would say that is the fault of the marketing company that they or the or the studio Castle uh, Castle Rock and Warner Brothers that they sold this as a prison movie because it's not a prison movie. Well, it is a prison movie. It's but, de- it's definitely a prison movie. I mean, it is about it, but it only but the like what they should. Well, then we're it, we'll get into this when we talk we about will. the the writing and stuff. But this to me, this isn't a prison movie. Interesting. Um, in that it could be anything like the prison the prison is is allegorical to anything in your life that's why it works it is your bad marriage it's the job you don't like it's we'll the, definitely have to get into it's that it's the kids at school picking story. on you it's it's yeah, yeah. it's depression it's whatever the walls are in your world that's what the prison is yeah we'll definitely have to talk about that because there's <laughs> there's some conversations that we will have to have um that's interesting uh, to go back to the intro part about context uh, because it was very much um, the opposite for me. Uh, this was your pick and the point of alternating is that you pick movies that you know better than I do and vice versa. Um, and that's this is a great example of that because I also didn't get into movies at a young age. I don't think I watched anything other than whatever my parents had in the VHS cupboard until I was... 16 and I didn't get into watching movies as an art form until I was in university almost and Shawshank Redemption was one of the movies that my mom adored when I was 
in like my mid-teens to young teens and I watched it once with her and I remember not really fully grasping it at the time and being in that young boy stage of ooh friendships whatever blah this is like just two dudes talking and like that's you know how uh the idea of uh, young ma male teenagers can be sometimes, unfortunately. And so I kind of was just like, whatever. I found it boring. I found it slow. I didn't find that it was engaged me much. Uh, and everybody talked about how amazing it was. And I just quietly nodded and smiled and went on with my life and never watched it again. And here, this week, was the first time I've seen it since then. So in like 10 years, probably at least. And it really goes to my growth as a person and where I've how I've changed the, my way of looking at things. But I would I've watched it twice and I would watch it again right now probably. And I just watched it this morning uh, because of how powerful the story is to me now as a person who's a little more emotionally mature and a little more in a different space, I guess, with film. So. I'm very curious for this conversation now. Well, uh, first, I kind of just want to address one of the things you were just saying, because I that this might be a bit of the generational thing between you and I. But I at no point did I ever find this movie boring because it was just conversational relationships. And that might be because I came out of watching movies like the movies that were on television when I was a youth in the early 90s and late 90s were movies from the late 80s and early 80s and early 90s. And those movies were conversational and were by today's standards a slower pace and did take more time to just have two people have some conversation that's abstract but kind of plays to an over overall theme that we're going for. And you left it a bit to the movie audience to um, to make those connections yourself, and and to a young uh, younger adolescent person who maybe like yourself, who's the movies they watched growing up were a little faster paced, were a little bit more uh, like plot point, to, like tying the plot point to the next plot point was more important than spending a little time not developing plot, just developing character. Um, and so the rhythm of this movie, I could see maybe being, uh, off-putting or well, boring or something. And I mean, and I mean, I love it now. And, and this, this kind of pace, uh, has a lot more of an appeal to me now that I'm, I actively look out for quality filmmaking rather than just watching movies that are, uh, quick in and quick out and you never remember anything about them. Um, but like when this came out in 94, I would have been three I right. guess. Um, and so my experience moving into TV and, and movies was like early 2000s. And that's when I definitely around the time when things started to, to change a lot. So, I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that that was very much a, a generational and an age thing and a, what I was used to at the time that I can now look back on and say I don't appreciate as much like in the same way that I did. And, and but part of why this I think played as a great television movie, like a movie for t to be cut up on TV is because this is a, t a two two twenty two hundred twenty minute movie or whatever it is. Two twenty four, I believe two is hour. what it is. Okay. But yeah, uh with that that length of movie it I think it really hums because they're going um you're the time passing is roughly 20 a little over 20 years. And so what you end up getting is kind of these little vignettes of pockets of time over a 20 year thing 
And so, and maybe it's because I, when I watched the movie, you know, I was, I don't know, the first time I saw it, I was like 13. And like, there's enough quote unquote action moments to break up all of these things that it, to me, it really does like one little vignette sets up the ne next little vignette. So, and because I liked so many of them, it was even when it got to the ones that I didn't like as much, it would be like, oh, but this is leading to that thing. So I just have to stay to the next commercial break. And then I'm into, uh, you know, when Tommy shows up and it's this breath of fresh air and you're like, yeah, or whatever. And um, we're going to have to talk about the time thing, too, because I love what they do with time. And I think that's a really important story uh, moment. So do I. And actually, though, but when I was prepping for this thing, I... Um, I looked at a, like some reviews and I looked at some negative reviews on purpose and I tried to seek out some people whose opinions I respect who didn't give this movie a great review. And um, a lot of the stuff, one of the things that was brought up a lot actually was the time passing versus what they felt was the aging of the characters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I thought that played really subtly. I thought if you do look at Andy when he's um, like that last night, before he escapes he has he definitely this, like, ages they, slowly but it's there they age him but he also plays older yes yeah 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 and i and i think that that kind of goes to a sort of timelessness of of the prison of like he has no idea how much time has passed but his perspective has aged and so him his personality has aged but we as the audience are supposed to be experiencing the timelessness in a way of that physical aging being a slow process like even with morgan freeman you know like at the end he's got some gray hair but beyond that he doesn't age much i don't think at least for my the way i saw it you look like you're ready to disagree with me but. no absolutely i was just gonna say that like morgan freeman now and morgan freeman <laughs> in 1994 are almost the same uh but uh he's uh ageless. he's ageless yeah, he's yeah. a god figure divine but, well and so i agree with you i mean i i didn't quite um the sta the the stasis of prison didn't that didn't uh, I didn't read that or never have really read that, but I like that idea a lot. That really is another part of the time that we'll have to talk about later. Yeah. And then, um, um, and then one of the other major complaints against, the, against this movie was the convenience of some of the plot points. And to which I say, that's because you're reading this movie. Like it is a nonfiction telling of a story. Yeah. If you read this movie as a as a fiction and therefore not but not just as a fiction but as a, a myth. All, and not just not just as a myth, but like literally it is the rememberings of an old man looking back on his time yeah. of this fictional story. The, Red is very much the narrator, mm -hmm. but isn't introduced until we're introduced to the the protagonist, which is Andy, but that you then have to believe that that is because of the structure of the film, that is that is Andy's remembering of that evening who's told Red, who's told us. Yeah, so it's Andy remembering and then told Red of his tales and then Red told us. Then told us through his memory of what Andy... Oh, it gets real deep. Well, no, but layers. not just that, but it's just that if we looked at that night through just Andy's eyes, that might have been a different experience. But mm -hmm. that, that, uh, that night is... The, the sharp edges of that evening are rounded off by it being told through the perspective of somebody who loves Andy at like the, like, you know, loves the human being that yeah, is yeah, Andy. Yeah. And so 
the fact that this whole story is told to us but through red's eyes and but uh, uh but it's myth making like he he is the like the ultimate myth he's the stranger that comes to town that alters the fabric of the landscape and then of the community and then disappears yeah yeah um it's like and then they tell stories about him to the youngins who come back at the end and you yeah. think oh how, what a beautiful moment and myths in general aren't great pieces of literature because of the words they they speak it's the great pieces of literature is the application that everybody finds to their own lives you get to put yourself in his shoes with the myth right um and so and and this to me this is the myth of hope or or like uh and i mean that's it's made clear numerous times by the director and the writing and all that in this movie that this is a movie about hope versus fear hope versus cynicism hope versus despair and that and hope can conquer all right and that's mm-hmm. the that's the whole theme to me that's the whole theme of this of this thing and so andy's like uh um like there's a there's a big popular online reading of this film that is it, it is a catholic or christian allegory that it that andy oh, is the son of god figure and he's like uh, jesus with the false death and the rebirth and all this stuff and huh. like now Darabont has come out and said that's really cool that they all read that into it that's not anything that's the thing about critical analysis right yeah is that readers are going to read what they're going to read and yeah Darabont himself has said that it's more about how the audience views it than about how he intended it right and but, but which will lead to more but uh, and on that note though that's why i i wanted to call andy the son of hope like hope personified he's the son of hope not the son of god he is the uh, the icon that is hope personified but he's he's still gonna have to learn to be to 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 be the perfect version of that idea that form and that's what he is at at the end of the film i like that a lot i like that a lot and uh if if you read this movie as the myth and the myth of hope i think everything plays perfectly and i and i and i do think this is the perfect a perfect modern day myth this holds up to (laughs) the ancient greeks in my opinion like that's how good this myth is to me but anyway well i'm very excited to get to that um i think first off to dive into the real meat of this thing uh i think we should as we do talk first about some of the more technical aspects of it and the the cine of it um i don't know what you want to lead with as far as whether you want to just dive into lighting and camera whether you want to talk about um other aspects of it if there's other aspects you wanted to get to first well i i think we should talk a little bit about the art direction and stuff like that only because i think they do a really good job of of world building and um and even the like the markers of the passage of time that kind of works with your idea of the stasis thing but they do that thing where you start out with rita hayworth and then it's marilyn monroe from seven year itch that came out uh in 55 and then and then it finishes with Sophia Loren or not Sophia Loren um Raquel Welsh from 10 uh 1 million years BC and that came out in 66 so like even that the, I mean that's a major change obviously it gets its own insert every time you change to show how much time is passing but also equally they are they represent the same thing, right? They're this attainable, unattainable Hollywood beauty, this like... This sex symbol, if you will, of like... uh, 
uh, idolized Hollywood celebrity sort of thing. Right. And uh and it, and I mean the difference in them is also the difference in time and stuff, but the Yeah. The they are the same thing, not to make it that like sound that crass. They they serve the same purpose despite being entirely right. different which i'm only adding that to i guess hold with the whole idea that you were talking about that stasis of this time in prison um mm-hmm. but like i i thought and but and so the prison they're in was decommissioned two years the real prison they're in was decommissioned two years before shooting this and by the time they got in there apparently a lot of people that maybe didn't have the fondest memories of the, those buildings had got in and smashed things and oh. and really wrecked the place and it was a real real like in real disrepair when they went into film so even though that is the real rooms they're in for a lot of things it's actually um, it's actually like it was almost full rebuilds because they had to strip things down to the like the the brick to repaint from from scratch because all the paint was peeling and all the like the well, really, and they, really they built the the main cell block in an entirely different place too right like a mile yeah. away or whatever in a warehouse this like huge construction that was almost interior the the size of the same building it was in it was so large yeah exactly and that's and uh, and but like uh, frank darabont says in interviews that if he's like if i blindfolded you and we walked you into that you would you would swear you were in the middle of the prison. Like it was that it matched that well. Everything was that like the doors were really functional on like air compressors that opened them. And they really, and the like skylights that run down the middle were lit through. So there was a combination of exterior lighting, quote unquote, exterior lighting and interior lighting with all the practicals around. Um, But the reason they did that build was because they, they really felt that geography from the short story uh was a major player in the story that the, that geography really mattered to this to the plot to have them all in that kind of courtyard style all facing into this one main area yeah 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 um and i think they're right i think that play like that plays a major role to build the suspense for andy's escape to have them all witness the brutality of the captain on the fre- f- the night with the fresh fish. Yeah, yeah. And who uh, in the script and in the credits is literally just known as fat ass. Yeah, I I saw that. Yeah. Uh, uh, before we get too far away from that production design part, something I, I had kind of thought that I wanted to mention, like I know there's a lot of um, attention drawn, I guess, to like the the really flashy, showy, amazingly um, detailed and and uh, over-the-top builds and sets and costumes and things that people really latch on to. Uh, but something in this one that I absolutely loved, and it was kind of personified, the first time you see the parole board panel, uh, the door opens, and there's, like, however, I think five people sitting there in a line, and they, like, they literally blend into the room they're in because they're all, like, same suits. It's all the same color as the room around. Like, it all just sort of becomes this big, like, flat almost panel um like a last supper sort of table uh image on the wall but it like all blends into the location it was and so that was a good example but my point i guess is that overall the the simplicity and the the toned downness of the costume design really really sold a lot of these a lot of these scenes for me 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I and I did think that they did this like I thought they blended seamlessly the real world with the with the builds and with the like I mean, until I read it uh, years years and years later, uh, that pipe really ran into that creek outside that prison to me and and that's that was a build and sunk into there yeah, and he yeah. crawls out of it obviously. And, you know, once I got into film, uh, that would have been so obvious to me. Yeah, but, yeah. I, I, like, as a kid, I believed it, like, that that was that play. Like, I believed that It was that very location. seamlessly connected. Just, like, and maybe this isn't quite the same, but, the, like, the attention to detail that was put into a lot of it comes so far as to that the first time we see Norton, um, when he walks out against all of them, they're standing in a line there. And he, he walks forward from a little bit of shadow, but not really shadow. But they did an excessive amount of painting tests for the color of those walls, specifically because Deacons wanted to have this almost fading out of black, but not quite, so that it wasn't, it was realistic. But also, you got this vibe that he just sort of apparated a little bit at the same time. And I don't know, just like. I, as soon as I read that, I was like, of course. I, I like I felt that watching that scene. I felt the care and attention they put into the specific paint of like the gray they used on the back wall to to really sell that spot and sell that character as well. And I mean, we'll get we can get into this more in lighting, but just that specific scene, I also took note um, because absolutely, uh, first the prisoners are brought in, and behind them is the these high windows. And that's they have the sun streaking down. Very on cathedral-like them. windows. Very cathedral-like, um, and with all his talk of blaspheming and all that stuff, it's it evokes tons of religious metaphor. And then, um, but also to note is that they aren't lit by anything but that light coming mm-hmm. in, uh, which is the which is the point of which you're talking about, where he exits the darkness and breaks the veil of darkness, and his face appears is from that light but what you notice on the reverse of the prisoners is there i mean there's more light bouncing around the room so and we want to be able to read their faces because we want to see that the 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 state of fear that they're all in but what you're doing is you're also kind of putting them in that little silhouette feel so they have they have their hotter backlight and what that does is you're kind of giving the impression that all of these faces are the same they're all slightly in shadow they're all there is a certain uh uniformity or 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 like the beginning of the removal of their humanity ah yeah yeah, yeah. kind of thing that they're 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 they are they are becoming part of this homogenized group of things that is inmate number whatever you aren't you aren't you anymore you're no longer the individual you are this mass thing Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. Uh, you're a number you, yeah and so i thought that i thought the lighting in that played to that as well um which is is subtle and maybe i re- was reading too much into it but i felt like really played that metaphor and if you were seeing the other side of it it makes sense that that metaphor holds yeah i mean i i don't i don't think you're reading too much into it i found a quote from the american cinematographer american society of cinematographers magazine uh, talking about the lighting and cinematography in this movie. And there's a quote from that where Darabond is talking about uh, Roger Deakins and says, um, where is it here? What's great about Roger is that he tends to think like a storyteller. He's not just a guy who lights and shoots. 
Roger viewed the film from the storyteller's standpoint and tried to create a visual journey that would match the journey the story took, which I think, I mean, it speaks to all of his films and how he goes about his work, but it's, I think it's why his work stands out for so many people is because he doesn't just light what looks cool. He lights what fits with what's happening in the story to really mesh the tech with the, with the, with the creative storytelling part to make a like a complete whole picture yeah uh, uh i i think both that quote and and uh and your analysis of it uh, are spot on i think he always uses light to elevate the story and tell the story rather than light the scene if that makes sense i guess it um, does because <laughs> uh, the there's there are th- scenes that i and i can't think of any right off the top of my head in the past but i i distinctly remember the feeling of watching it and not understanding why he lit it a certain way only to realize that it was playing to an emotion that i was st- like supposed to be starting to pick up on subtly that would later then be like lead to some sort of major event in the film. He does it a little bit in this with Brooks, I think. A character that doesn't really exist in this story also. Yeah, and I think you can almost tell that because he's the only one that the narration switches to him. Yeah, yeah. He's also the only one who who seems to be... Dis- he's sort of like the only distinctly separate character from the rest of them. Like, he comes in when he's needed for the purpose of emotion or for the purpose of motivation of other characters and then he fades out when he's not needed his death is the trigger is the is the main trigger point in andy's arc uh where he's where he stops where the the effects he's causing on the prison stop being a passive effect of of the things he's doing and he starts causing active effects to the prison interest after that point i i feel like I, I didn't get as much of a connection there. For me, the big connection I drew, and I mean, we're getting into story realm here already, so I'll keep this one brief uh, and pull back from this tangent. But I, I thought he was his connection was really more strongly felt with Red in the sense that they are... Um, Brooks is what Red doesn't want to become, but Brooks is also what Red becomes to a point where they literally mirror the the shots and the writing and the the plot progression of what happens to both of them and when it happens and how it happens and the words they say when it happens in so many instances to create this sense of you know there's two paths here there is the path of the man who lost hope who ends up hanging himself in a halfway house because he can't deal with life and then there's the path of the man who held on to it thanks to his good friend and managed to avoid that fate but just narrowly yeah, and that's why I think it's it is that but like because uh, this goes to Deacon's and Darabont's decisions, but like with the cinematography. But you, like you're saying, when we see Brooks get out of jail, we are from where the camera is outside the jail, looking into the jail. He's literally when the shot opens, still behind bars, and then they open the door and he comes out. Whereas when we later see Red, we are inside the prison, looking out. And he's the first thing we see is the door open and he's standing in front of no bars. Well, yes, but there is still a wall there. Sure. If you want to get real metaphorical but about he, this. He walks out, but like, but just, and I think that it, that representation is the representation of, of 
like it is like the institutionalized thing, but it is it's hope versus no hope. It's, it's and, and they do mirror it not so much as I'm physically leaving, but I'm mentally still there. Whereas with Red, and I'll get to this later with story stuff, but Red is already physically or mentally left when he physically leaves to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and that's the yeah. And, and so I, guess, I guess when I say mirror too, I mean that they do the same thing. They repeat that sort of imagery, but also it is reversed. I mean, they're on opposite sides of the bus when they leave. Yeah. The camera switches angles for a lot of it. But anyways, but but and there's more than that. Like they, of course, and we'll get with, to with the cine for um, with the storytelling with Brooks when it does his little vignette because it like literally the story stops being a story told by Red. Um, and Red does that institutionalized thing, like conversation with all the guys on the on the this like the, the stand, bleachers, the, the bleachers, and then we and then we cut to this little. We get to spend time. He's we see him give his crow away, uh, or like let set the free uh, set free his crow, and then you know we see this this little vignette, and it's like almost like the first ten minutes of Up, <laughs> where it's yeah, like just yeah. this sad little thing where it introduces you to this guy whose status quo sucks, yeah, and yeah. he and the only way he sees out is suicide, um, but also wants to leave a mark so he carves he doesn't want to be completely forgotten but he wants to leave um uh but i think he is a touchstone he's a touchstone for all the characters in the movie but i think he's a touchstone because and this is going away from the lighting and into story but so to me all of andy's decisions uh when he first gets in there if you're going on my whole thing that he is hope he is uh, the icon of hope um are hopeful but personal to him um so and then the effects they have on the people around him are only kind of passive effects that they read off of him but he is still this like stand separately to them thing of this this icon of hope (laughs) so like the first thing with the beer uh on the roof he puts himself a little bit in jeopardy, sure, but he he always like and what a stupid way to approach a prison guard and say. Well, yeah, I uh, mean, like the, his choice of opening, yeah, the yeah. opening sentences were not super well planned. Because the 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 line that gets him to not throw him off the roof is, "I have you can keep all that money." Why doesn't he open with that? Why doesn't but, he open with insinuating that but, the guy's uh, wife? But is... then it, the stakes aren't as high, and then the myth yeah. isn't as cool yeah, yeah. if if he's not on the edge of the roof when that whole. It's not as good of a story. Yeah. So that so, but anyway, but um, I th- I think Red notes that Andy did that just to feel normal, and I but and so and the cynical read is Andy's doing that to get in with the guards and the prisoners all in one swift stroke. I, I think that all three of the the arguments that are made there are true to some extent or another. I don't think that any of them are not true. Right. But I think that the read that we want us we want or the story wants us to take because of this mythology thing is the idea that he's doing it to feel normal. Yeah. I, and I think that, and I, cause that for the myth and the person telling us the myth, that's what it is. It's, it's for Andy to fear, feel normal. Right. And that's, that's what red wants the story to be. About. Right. And that's the, and getting him the chess set because that's something he can feel normal doing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like all, of, all of the early thing when he gets placed in the library, uh, he's like, well, I may as well make, something out of this and he starts writing those letters and that th- and that's again that's it's it's for him to feel normal it's all for him to feel normal and the effects of of that is it per- it's all of the other 
uh, inmates kind of looked to him as this uh, as this ideal of of something more of hope of of normal and that's what they're all striving for that's what they all want and then once brooks dies after that the first thing that happens we see after brooks dies is they finish reading that letter um they have the conversation where he's saying no it is it's uh where there's it's that really important conversation between morgan freeman at the table when it's the first time he actually says like no hope is a good thing and he says no hope is a bad thing it'll kill you in here and it's the first real sort of strife uh, i guess right and, and and but it's also the first time like andy identifies himself like outwardly as uh, i am the bearer of hope <laughs> he yells, it's also the first time he identifies himself outwardly besides just being a kind of uh wallflower in the gray background kind of thing and i and i think that's important because um oh and it's just before that conversation obviously that he is he's play he plays the music for the people mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it, that's him he's finally doing something to per to give normalcy to the rest of the inmates but it's it's at a co at his his own cost to this point that hasn't been with most of his decisions Sure, they're a little risky, but they're not that risky. And maybe he didn't gain from them, but he certainly didn't lose from them like he does. Well, yeah, that and music. it's even even like prior to that. Sorry, back to uh, I forgot one of the ones was, but with the whole tax season thing in the library. Yeah. Like, so like he fixes up the library. It like when he gets down there first, it's a cluttered mess. All these different rooms with books and benches and things piled high, and he cleans that up because to be functional. But then also something it does as a passive side effect is it gets all his buddies one month out of the year out of the laundry and into that job so they can staple papers and do whatever filing and all this. So it provides this little escape for these people. But him, he's just doing it to feel normal because he was a banker on the outside. This is normal. This, this So it's a per he's doing it personally, but it passively it's affecting the world around him. And then when we get to the Brooks thing plays the record he's actively doing something and then after that he he t talks to about hope to to morgan freeman morgan freeman denies him mm -hmm. and he and uh what what's the thing he does for more he literally gives him music the next scene which he, by the way i'm super bummed that the only time we see him touch the harmonica is the one soft note that he plays in the dark the one time right like, but that's super it's the night he escapes too but yeah, I guess that's part but of it. There's not really a lot of time. But even to have him play it like at the tree or something, to have him embrace that physical gesture, I feel like was oh, a missed opportunity that he didn't. Uh, maybe, but I I just thought that one note was was the he's returning to it. Like we know that, like, be, for whatever why we don't know why he really stopped. He just like lost it or whatever. Lost it, and so I feel like. The moment he touches it to the lips, it's going to be a part of him again. Yeah, see, I started to get that sense, but then he stops. And to me, I read that as like, I read that as a remorseful sort of he's not ready yet kind of moment where, right. where he's, he's... And I don't think he is, but that leads to Andy's last big reveal of hope and change for these people is because in his state of mind, he doesn't know whether the man that he's come to know that represents hope is about to kill himself because the prison finally broke him 
or Which what? also the fact that he doesn't even talk to the guy about it before they go in or anything and well, doesn't like I always got the impression they didn't he didn't have a chance. Like Andy avoided him the rest of the day after they have the conversation about Sewataneo. I did get that vibe as well, but also I feel like if you were really concerned about your friend, maybe you would have gone and tried to make a talk to him. But yeah. that also kind of ruins the whole plot of like, oh well, he doesn't know what's gonna happen and that powerful sort of trying to sitting up through the night sort of thing. Right. But I, and I, but I think it is like, it's, and it, and, but that's, I think like Andy leaves the prison for red more than he leaves the prison for himself. I think he, his conversations with red, um, and like the say conversation while red gets worried about him, he gets worried about red with the questions like, do you ever think you're going to get out of here? Well, I will when I'm too old to care and have a couple barbels in my br- left in my brain yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, "No, this guy needs hope. He needs he needs something and he escapes that night, I feel, not for himself but for all the other inmates, but specifically to crack the nut, the tough nut that is red." I, yeah, I, I that's interesting. I didn't look at that that way, but I feel like that's probably got a lot of weight to it. I mean, I I think cuz it suggests that he was already ready to go. The yeah. hole was dug. He had his way out. Everything was together. All he had to do was execute the plan. And we don't know how long it was, but obviously he'd been putting it off for whatever reason well, because he was at home and he was comfortable and he didn't have anything to go back to technically. And the night he decides to go, of course, there's the perfect thunderstorm yeah, for him well, to do. do his, there, no, but that, that goes to the myth of it, right? Oh, it does. Because he, he literally, he, he makes the decision, I'm going tonight, but what do I need to go? <laughs> I need, I need to, a, thunderstorm. a thunderstorm. And it thunders, like... He's now at a god level where he's changing the world to meet his needs. Yeah, yeah. And um and and he and the thing is when he gets out um he does two things. He it shows the effect that they had on the he now like he is now the icon of hope to them. They all swap stories about him, this amazing person that came in and touched their lives and changed them. But he also they aren't in Shawshank anymore in a way cuz he's he's torn down the the walls of Shawshank when he left by getting rid of the warden and the captain like he's he it's not just a matter of um it's not just a matter of of getting rid of those two people he's li- like he's literally tearing down, like just like he tore down the walls of the library and physically changed the environment of the prison he's tearing down the metaphorical walls of the prison which is the prison guard and and him who were the ones who kept him in there like they they represent the environment that is trying to keep him there uh once he's made the decision after brooks dies to like start actively pushing back and changing the environment changing the walls tearing down the like library walls and all that stuff and um and uh the but the environment starts to push back which is killing tommy which is uh, all that type of stuff ending that like here fate puts another bit of hope in front of you and then we tear it down uh the, the killing tommy thing also becomes kind of like uh like that wasn't in the story either that was no. that wasn't a component of the original um but it gives an actual protagonist whereas up until this point you know the warden's kind of a protagonist and captain hadley the great clarence brown yes yes he up until this point uh like they were kind of villains but also they were not because they were allowed they were 
giving him what he wanted. They were they were not fighting his progress. They were enabling his progress. And it isn't until I, I would I would say that Tommy is shot that uh, he realizes that they aren't actually enabling him in the same way. Well, that and then also he uh, ends up his two month stint in the hole as well. Uh, doesn't help his case, the case either. But like we we and he sees both of these two now as the enemy who's been in his bed this whole time, and a, and a proper protagonist to the story versus uh, the fact that before that I don't think there really was it wasn't a protagonist or an, sorry an antagonist at the same level as. Yeah, I always felt Hadley like he's the he's the henchman or whatever. Like he's an yeah, antagonist. Yeah, yeah. But he's he's not he's an antagonist in that he's the weapon of the warden, because I don't think he's ever I don't think Hadley's ever good even when he beats up Boggs. No, I no. don't think he's, that's he's like an, he's an enabler. But that I don't doesn't think make that's a good. redemption moment for him. No, like, no, no. When I was younger, I read that as a redemption moment for him. Like it, I was like, yeah, he's F- defending the hero. Yeah. But in the bad guy. But it's it's not. He's controlling the hero. Yeah, like that yeah. just makes the hero more indebted to them. Is especially when they talk about like, oh, he'll never walk again, and he drank food through a straw the rest of his life. Yeah. Like that that really sells up the oh well, do good guys really leave people in that state? But I and also would Andy have wanted that? <laughs> now this is the cynical view of that again. But like he got the guards on his side up at the top of the roof so that he had friends and connections in the in the controlling authority that got him a lot of benefits and one of those benefits i'm sure he expected was to be given a bit of special treatment and be protected you know sure i think that that was at least to a point his intention whether or not he wanted him to get uh, i can't remember but, the guy's but name but i read but... that more as a, he wanted what he was actually wanted Hogs? is a is a yeah he wanted a return to normalcy he does, it's not that he wanted distinctly to stop being a target for the sisters he wanted he wanted he just wanted it to feel more normal i think that's kind of a point of contention that i rubbed up with in the movie in general is his reaction to this abuse i had a hard time fully getting behind i guess like he's constantly being sexually abused by these guys and he's not he's not outwardly showing any signs of trauma he's not um he's not he's not doing anything to protect i mean he's trying to fight them off every time that was what morgan freeman is quoted as having said is you know they came back every now and again and sometimes he fought them off and sometimes he didn't but one way or another his experience of that and it's at not really i don't think a fault of of the way it was played i think it was just a kind of a fault in the story that he doesn't have any sort of response or reaction to those events he doesn't and and that was that was the moment like the 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 way that Hadley treats uh Boggs is to me like the big um the only moment where he sort of has any kind of response to all of the shit that's being done to him is that he he gets his revenge in the only way he can and you know so i i I think that that could have been handled a little better overall but uh before we go on i wonder if we should 
I don't know if you'd rather interrupt that flow to like try and talk a little bit about that cine stuff and bring it back yeah, to yeah. that, Let's or if that. you'd rather come back to that at the end. But no, I, like I, I mean, it, it's all going to what we're talking about, anyways, and it's all, it's all, it all works. But like, essentially, like, um, I, I mean. I am a unabashed fanboy of Deacons. Oh, me too. Me I, too. Uh, he's my favorite director of photography, cinematographer. Um, and it's, I mean, it, it's not really close to any, like he's the, uh, I, I don't think I've ever disliked anything he's done. I don't think I've ever watched a movie he shot that I didn't like. And I don't, I think he's the only DP that I will actively recognize a lot too, where I'm like, I will seek out a movie because Deacon shot it, but I won't seek out a movie at, that any other cinematographer shot. yeah 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 um and also i think that goes to um because of what Darapont said about him being a storyteller is i think he picks good stories he does i've listened to his podcast a few times quite a bit actually and he talks a lot about how particular he uh him and his wife are about picking the movies they work on and how they select it which has a lot to do with um, the relationship to the director and the relationship to the story and whether they think it's a good story or not. So I think that's uh, a big reason too, is because you know if he's shooting a movie, it's probably going to be a good movie. So there was a I I was looking for things to kind of pick on a little bit in this because <laughs> uh, well one is this is this is his work from like his mid career and he's learned a lot since then and mm -hmm, yeah. I think he's better now than he was when he did this movie. Um, but, uh, in the, in, in interviews and stuff I read with him about this movie, um, um, somebody would talk, was talking about day exteriors and he was, he said, they're the thing he hates the most. And it's a, that it's a really funny thing coming from, uh, like the small budget stuff you and I work on here in Vancouver, because in the lighting department, day exteriors means slightly less work and uh, also coming from the guy who shot 1917 which was basically all day exteriors yeah. excluding a few scenes so what he hates about it is control um, right so um and in fact there's th uh, the example of why he hates it i would say plays out in the very first time we see red in the yard uh, before just before andy's arriving or the stuff that they intercut with that but there is a there's them on the bleachers and that kind of thing, and then him and him and uh, one other character start walking together, and it's this uh, it's this uh, leading two shot of them on their faces as as we pull back with them, and all of a sudden there's just a really hard side light sun that's coming in, and it's all over their faces and their oh, shadows on the ground, yeah. and that get and then they intercut that with this kind of off axis uh kind of tracking two shot that's a little bit more sidey to get a different pro like more profile on morgan freeman as he turns to look at that character and it's gone again and then it's gone in the wides and it's gone in the close-ups but it was when you there don't have, for that one two shot and when so, you don't have the 1917 budget to wait 45 minutes to an hour for the cloud yeah, cover to change exactly and so this was um in fact in on the dvd commentary darabont talks often about how they had to rush certain shots or do certain shots in the morning because for budgetary reasons they lost all the inmate extras in oh, the afternoon yeah, yeah. because they were cutting 30 extras or whatever after lunch um and so th that was that's not a mistake that was just a i mean it's a it is a quote-unquote mistake but it's like a budgetary it's like schedule. there's nothing you can do about that you reason. just have to live with it um 
And uh, legit, that was one of the only mistakes I found in this whole thing, (laughs) except for, and again, this is just kind of goes to the introduction of the character, but the very first opening scene, Andy is incredibly well lit in a 1940-something vehicle. Oh, beautiful. That's like at night and... The whole gag is that it play. It's the radio. His radio is so well lit that it's lighting his face this well. <laughs> and um, and I thought that was a weird choice because, and I guess we want to see his face because we want to read everything that his face could say. But if if you told me if you gave me the same blocking, um, like if Frank Darabont and I was his DP that day. But uh, because Deacons was sick and I had to light it for him. Uh, I like this thought experiment. Let's go with it. um, Like, so when they cut to the wide uh, over of the car onto the house, the establisher of the house that the lovers are in, there is two lane markers that have lights on them, uh, like two bricked lane markers. And he's parked, I don't know, 10, 10 feet, 20 feet back from those. And so if I was to light it, I would have played it a lot darker. I would have played it as if those were lighting, oh, the only thing lighting his face, except for I would have had that same low light they have in there that is the quote-unquote radio light, but I would have had it like significantly dimmer and just catching, because he kind of has teary eyes in, yeah, in yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that low low light that they're using is picking it, like is picking it up on the, like, the, the water on the lower lid. Um, but it's not, it's not emphasized because he's how bright the rest of the frame is. Right. And so I thought it's funny that you say one of the darkest frames in the entire movie is bright, but yes, but it's, he's bright, I guess. Yes. Yeah. 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 I I understand. I just thought his face is completely exposed and, and, um, anyway, yeah, it was so that, that was, and that's just a personal thing, obviously. And that could have been just the director saying, no, we need to see his face in this moment. And then the DP doesn't get a choice. I mean, I guess the other side of that is you could also play it like there's a sodium vapor street light or like something, you know, and fill a bit that way. Um, I more or less agree. I, I don't think it's as big of an issue only because I think that it's very common that practicals get played much brighter than they are. Yeah, but that's, um, even, that's not even, those practicals that's lighting his face. No, no, I know. But but what I mean is that, like, um, the idea of the practical is the dashboard light. Oh, right. But yeah, regularly, yeah. practicals are played way brighter than they are. Yeah. It, like, it's the same thing in 1917, too, with those oil lamps. Like, there's no way that if they burned oil oh, lamps, they'd be that bright. No, no. Instead, they put those huge... Um, I think they were LED like fixtures inside them to give that light. Um, and same with this, like the, the, a lot of the lighting within the prison at night is done by the, the practicals that are on the walls of the cells and in the front and the main, uh, um, courtyard area. Um, and, and, uh, but I would, I, they did stuff on the close ups to sweeten it. Yeah. I guess all I mean is that I feel like while I agree that it's clearly brighter than it should be if it were real life, I think that it didn't bother me in the same way that, like, I know you're just trying to draw attention to something. To yeah, yeah. Make, and I'm I'm over here just being like, nope, I, I think it's great because Roger Deakins is great. But also, yeah, yeah. Um, like, I, I think it still works is, I guess, my point. Um, 
Now, the other thing is Lede exteriors, for the most part, they lucked out and are like gray overcast days. They also like never show the sky for the most part. Though. But like, I think was... that's on purpose. Oh, it definitely because is. Because you're supposed to feel confined. And in fact... It's been said that like uh, by Deacons that his intention was to shoot as much of the architecture while keeping as much of the sky out as possible throughout right. the whole prison. And I... Until the end when they get free and they open up the whole frame to like these big wides with huge skylines. But I think it goes even further than that. I think for the most part in the early parts of the movie, you don't even see the characters looking up, which, which brings me to a scene that I thought uh, was really cool was the, um, the opera playing uh, scene uh mm-hmm. when it does all the coverage of all the inmates uh, they're all the looking most, up they're all looking up but the camera also is just below the eye line to emphasize that so like the camera should pro- if you're like direct on the eye line of the main people that are like in the foreground of the thing you, the camera should probably be two or three more feet up yeah but you, you want to be we've the dropped, perspective of the yeah, speaker they're looking at so but we drop lower than their like where the camera lens is like right around their collarbone and just that little bit of a down uh, upward angle and then their eyes up kind of really i think emphasizes very, them looking up i don't want to say angelic but this very sort of like uplifted heroic like but that like because that's that's my read of that scene yeah, right? yeah. is that he's 100 art and beauty as escapism and then that's yeah, yeah. why later he gives them that lesson after he spends a week in the hole that big no, music he, they speech. couldn't take the me- music away from here it's in here which is like one of my favorite points of dialogue in that entire movie to be honest as far as like yeah little, little speeches go it's a beautiful scene yeah yeah and i i just think it's i, I anyways I, I think the like it really like in the hero like the hero's journey uh um Campbellian thing like that Brooks thing to me is the is the bottom of your circle yeah and everything yeah. and that starts the upward trajectory is after Brooks um and it's because I also think that's kind of when he when Andy was getting to like a place of comfort within the prison um and that's disrupts him out of that and that's what draws him back into the that's interesting I I actually it's funny I thought about um the scene where he carves his name into the wall um when i when i was first watched the first time i watched it through and by first time i mean common for recent yeah, yeah. first time not like 10 yeah. years ago um but I, I my immediate thought when i saw him scratching his name in the wall was oh there it is he's he's accepted where he is he's accepted his surroundings this is him putting his mark where he is and just being okay with it um, and it isn't until later when you get to the end and you realize that that's also the same moment that he realizes he can get out, that there's this sort of great juxtaposition between the two, uh, that if you hadn't seen the movie before and you don't know that what's happens after the camera cuts away, it's this, uh, it, it gives you like that, the moment of lowest, like, this is where I am and this is where I'm going to be is also the moment of. I can get out of here. Yeah. And I think, I, I do think he really did. Um, Cause I think like it's red's acceptance of, of hope that gets him out of prison because, because he finally takes on board the whole that like you can free yourself in your mind. You can go elsewhere. You can. So like in that final speech, when he's saying like, I don't give a damn. 
Yeah, yeah. He's not saying, like, I want to stay in here. He's saying, whether you say I'm rehabilitated or not, I, I don't care because I know me. I'm free up here now because I have Andy to think about and I have music to think about and I have Sewataneo to think about and I have I have this stuff in my life and unlike all the previous times where they really juxtapose his attitude with the words he's saying like especially that second time Yeah well I was going to say that middle one where like his he literally talks about how hope is is bad, bad. and then goes right to him sounding more hopeless than he sounds in the rest of the movie just like going through the motions again but it's but he's sent yeah and it's that true like the first time you feel like he is the time he's trying the hardest we see him trying like oh yeah i'm rehabilitated i would never yeah, do this yeah. again i want out and there and for whatever reason they don't let him out uh <laughs> and then in the second one though i can see for the most part i think it's because I like it, it feels false what he's saying because he's so despondent mm-hmm. and then he's like but arguably the first one sounds false because he it's a faked uh in- put on of yeah, enthusiasm yeah. that that if you're paying attention I guess you can kind of see through yeah sure um, and and the last one he's real and honest and I think they respond to that and yeah. that's why he gets out I don't think it's because they're like oh he's I, like I don't think they read it as he's spitting in the face of authority i think they read it as like he's finally come to terms with himself and what he's done and yeah, has, exactly. has come to accept whatever he has which on the cine point that uh those three sequences uh that sort of bookend or i guess act end the progress of the movie were were interest it was just so interesting to see the like the mirrored shots the mirrored positions but watching how each time even though everything looks the same you're getting character arc progression displayed yeah. in such a subtle, well, maybe not so subtle, but yeah, yeah. sort of subtle, uh, non-obtuse kind of way. Even even to, the again, the costume design there where the first sequence, he's got all of his prison garb on. He's got the shirt. He's got the jacket. He's wearing the pants and whatever. Even has the hat. Even has the hat. The second one, he's just got the nicely buttoned up prison shirt. And then the third one, He's got like it's kind of untucked and like, open, like he's clearly throwing off the shackles in his costume design. Yeah, which is super well constructed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, uh, you nailed the nailed it on the head there. Uh, hit the nail on the head. That's <laughs> uh, hit the hammer on the nail on that one. <laughs> um, yeah. The oh, uh, I wanted to say I wanted to point out a couple of cool things I I noticed in the dialogue. Um, so after that third scene, when he gets out and Andy physically gives him music by giving him the harmonica, and he still rejects the hope that Andy's giving him, but he thanks him for it. But it's it's like because he's not going to change overnight, right? Massive change can't happen that quick. He's got to slowly build to it. Um, but I I did think it was interesting that. Um, um shortly after that there's the scene with those two individuals in the prison library where he's asking andy about the fraud the the fraud he's committing on on behalf of the prison guards mm-hmm. and andy tells him about the man he made up he made and i think that's a really big i think it's a really big symbol for red and it's um because he he literally makes up a free man out of thin air right he yeah, makes yeah. Out a man he makes up a person who to the government is completely real, who exists outside the walls and is a free person 
and that created him entirely out of thin air. a fig- figment of his and imagination. He's, and he said he calls him. I think he calls him a magician in it, but he also calls him Rembrandt, which I think yes. is really interesting to call him one of the like masters of art. Uh, also, the one that is most predominantly connected with film and the whole every yeah. frame of painting thing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and like exactly, and 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 um, I just think it's a like um, because. Uh, clearly one of the themes of this movie is is art as escapism art as uh, art and beauty as escapism as freedom as fresh air as a life force that we all need to participate in um when you when he identifies him in that scene as rembrandt i feel like i feel like that's a significant moment in their relationship and it it kind of it actually puts andy Although Red kind of has always looked up to Andy uh, a, a little bit in awe, the reverse has always been true as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in that, I think in that moment, they're at least on a level playing field. If not, uh, Andy has been more elevated, maybe to to Red in that moment a little bit. And uh, and then I think that carries on to like because um, shortly after that is the Tommy stuff and Tommy is Andy but 15 years later he's all <laughs> he has hope he has something on the outside something greater than these he's walls he's cocky and, and but he has that but he it's because he he's the he is that fresh breath of fresh air because he is um I mean he is the winds of change he is he's fate coming in uh yeah. at, to to help Andy but so Andy helps fate and fate helps Andy. Uh, so he gets out. <laughs> so, uh, cause he's, uh, he's coming in and he has a reason he wants to get out. He has a young wife and baby or baby. Yeah. The they way. suggest they don't, they don't ever say it directly, <laughs> but they suggest that, Oh, well maybe that maybe he has a young wife and kid or something, but something put a fire under that boy's ass. Yeah. And so he, and he wants to better himself. And so he goes mm-hmm. to Andy to get an education. So he gets, he learns and, and education. He gets a book learning. And, uh, and that's growth and that's change and that's hope that's that gives him something to hold on to and what how does he repay that well turns out i have this factoid about this guy who random stranger who showed up the night that you were randomly (laughs) gonna kill your wife but then didn't kill your wife just so happened to be casing the same joint at the same time i will say my rewatch of it this time for like i rewatch it twice again for this um and I will say it's the first time I really, really bumped. And that says it says a lot about me, but I really, really bumped on Andy was in the car outside their house with a gun, with bullets drunk. Like that is a it's a significant, but it's a small step away from doing the act. It is. And and I think the, the reason I, I didn't bump on it so much is is that statement of, oh, well, they weren't home. So I had to wait and I sobered up and realized what I was doing, which is interesting because in the script, that's not the case. Um, I read through, I've only read the first 15 pages or so, but I wanted to get a sense because so many people I've seen and heard have talked about how from a script writing standpoint, it's it's what you should read if you want to learn how to write a script. Um, and from what I've read so far, it is a very well-written script. Um, but the opening scene is quite different in a lot of ways. Um, primarily the one that the way the biggest way that it's different i guess is that it clearly shows us that they were there at the same time 
that he it's it breaks down that he shows up he loads his gun he hears them going at it he walks up gets there his wife orgasms and then he at that point his spirit breaks and he leaves um it's not the the sobering up it's not the and then in court he says the same thing so he lies in court saying that he had to wait when the script suggests that he didn't have to wait and that they were in fact there um and the order is different as well like we see the scene of him being there first and then we see the court scene and then we go to the prison it's not split up yeah that that was actually um and they were planning on shooting it that way but then they only had the cottage for one day well honestly i think it turned out better so, no, so like i i absolutely agree but chance. so according to darabont he realized he said about four hours into the day that they weren't going to make their day that there was no way they were going to be able to shoot the whole lovemaking scene and him going up to the door and the other thing. And he's like, well, when in doubt, shoot the movie star. So they shot Tim Robbins scene in the car first. And then they went and they shot the other bits. And then in the edit room, they were, they were like looking, they were talking to producers about maybe re going back and reshooting and a bunch of different stuff. And then he said one day in the shower, Darabont on the way into the edit, he had an idea like, why don't we use it as, um flashback during the testimonies and that'll play to uh kind of juxtapose what we're hearing with what actually happened and or that kind of thing or uh, but i think it's all to add a cloudy murky it 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 idea. lends to the idea that we don't know until until the point where it's properly Tommy. revealed yeah, later yeah. in the movie that he is innocent and they give you that lead where you're like oh well maybe he was drunk and maybe he is guilty um, and, but at the same time, it, it, it's interesting. I find that like, um, connecting to a, a different idea I had, uh, based on character and revolving around that, here's my tangent for the next 20 minutes, probably not that long. <laughs> um, but one of the things that, uh, we talked about at the beginning that we wanted to come back to was why the movie didn't do so well when it first came out. And, like I had suggested, I think a lot of what had to do with it was the public attitude at the time of the hard on crime and whatever else. And the, the really, really the explosion of, um, uh, I guess excessive incarceration in the United States was at this time when this film, which is as far as I know, the only depiction in Hollywood cinema of prison that is not, just a space where the main characters get to or get to or rather have to sort of sell their masculinity in like fights or in like it's it's always presented as like a bunch of hyper masculine conflict like glorified fighting in prison space versus this is real people doing real people things and they're trying really hard in this to allow you to connect with these convicts who have done bad things in the past but are still not necessarily bad people you know hey haywood for all his problems or whatever it is that he's done which we never find out he's like a, a, a lovable like connectable character with whatever flaws he has and same thing with johnny johnny comes in he's like this kind of or tommy keep doing that this like innocent uh, lovable sort of like young kid that you want to turn his life around and he almost gets to uh, until he doesn't um, but there's this sort of 
thing with um with our lovely protagonist here who who if if the movie had been done the way it was written in the script he's even more implicit whereas the way it's done now we follow him as the only one who is properly innocent so it's like it's our way in to to allow us to empathize with these other characters who aren't but are trying to be better people despite it which i I thought was like probably the only way they really could have gotten people on board with supporting these characters anyways is is that connection right because that's if you don't connect with the people then you're not going to commit to the movie i guess and and there's there's this great moment with haywood where and it's right at the beginning and it's it's like it sets up that sort of being comfortable or being comfortable uh rooting for these guys is that like he's talking to the dude who was in the infirmary about uh how this his his fish was and whether he was okay and how he was gonna oh i owe him like a big kiss or cigarettes or whatever and he's like oh he's dead and there's this like there's this moment where we just linger on his reaction to that and and you see in him the like the realization that he has been complicit in the death of somebody who didn't deserve to die and you see that remorse there and then he turns on that prison face when when uh uh Dufresne starts asking well what was his name was and he switches back to it but you you get that like brief crack where you see through and connect with the character before you go back to sort of seeing the harder exterior which I thought was really a really good character moment yeah and I I think again that would be a major criticism of this film if you don't read it as a myth and if you don't because like there wasn't like factions there was like you're saying there's no gangs there's no these people stick together with these people like i mean they, they, were, they do they just don't but like they were the like, sisters are a gang and sure, these guys but they are were like little... friendship groups kind of like yeah you know what I mean? it's, it it's like, more it's more idealized there was yeah sure. that's what i'm saying it's like and and it actually it goes to uh, the whole andy thing at the start is like that is what you're saying. If you're telling a myth and you need people to connect with the protagonist right away, you do this hyperbolic version of events where like his wife was cheating on him, but he was like a, he was a successful man. He's a VP of a bank or something. And he but has, not the bad kind. He was a straight arrow. He, he didn't a, break the law. He right. was a good banker. Exactly. He was one of the good guys. And then, well, but also there was a point in which during history, a banker was a good you know well I mean? yeah yeah yeah. We, people didn't we don't view it like the with... goldman sachs and yeah, yeah, uh, all yeah. that kind of stuff um maybe not maybe i'm wrong but I, what used to be more i thought in film it was used as a respectable job often yeah it's it said that you were an educated person who worked a white collar job yeah. and, and and you know and then you know and then a tragedy uh you're cuckolded by your your wife and blah blah while you're out making the money and all that <laughs> guy, all the world's against things. you and then you know you're you're so desperate that you go there with a gun or with a weapon but you don't of course your your true nobility takes over you're not going to do that thing and you decide against it but lo and behold fate has a different plan for you uh, randomly that evening a stranger also decides to break in kills them blah blah um and just as like uh at one point andy describes it as i i, I got in the way of the pa- path of the tor- uh, tornado yeah uh, yeah i just didn't think it would last this long yeah and it's and it's partly goes to why he has that like and it is why you you do get nervous as a viewer if you don't know what happens after in that moment because that is the 
the first time he doesn't sound truly hopeful but if you watch that and you know what's going to happen i don't think he doesn't sound hopeful in that moment uh, i really paid attention to the dialogue this time to see if there's a true mislead and because i don't like i didn't think that would be earned but if you if you know what's going to happen everything he says there he's he's talking about it and maybe to i don't know why like there's lots of reasons i guess you wouldn't include your friends in on the plan of you escaping or whatever but I, again i think it goes to the this thing i've been banging on the whole time about it being a myth is that like because he needs to represent hope and freedom it, he needs to do that thing alone and be that icon for all of them as opposed to because i don't know it, things get more complicated when you start bringing other people in on the plan yeah yeah well that's always and and also the whole you know you can't uh you can't be uh you can't get in trouble for something you didn't know and if he brought red in on it or anyone else in on it then they're immediately complicit and they they have to lie or don't and either way they're going to get in more trouble um that's interesting i would push back a little bit on your point about the like idealized myth thing in that in the sense that now like i obviously i've never been to prison and i don't i've never even gone inside one although sometimes i've kind of thought about like i sh i want to do this for like the sake of knowledge and story writing but like i don't know anybody that's been to jail so i don't really have a an opportunity to but um I would say that I feel like the the presentation of it um, seems to me like it would be more realistic than than the idea that gets presented in Hollywood. And I think that there's like there's maybe a middle ground between the the prison of of like your classic blockbuster action movie versus the prison of of. Shawshank where Shawshank is definitely a little bit more idealized as far as like there's not a lot of fights other than the main character conflict and stuff but I, I, I think that it's a more true to humanity sort of representation where you've just got a bunch of people in a place and they just have to coexist together and um, I think that there's there's a lot of truth to it that maybe is left on the wayside by just calling it a myth mythologized view of the prison uh, yeah, I just don't think it's necessarily like a movie about prison reform or like... Right, so we got to get to that point because we said we were going to talk about that. Because I, I don't... Like, I, I think that the prison is just a stand-in for anything. And like, the most two-dimensional characters in this whole thing are the warden and the captain. Because they are one-note evil the whole time. And the warden, sure, there's a little bit of light and shade there. Um, but we don't get anything from him that 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 like empathizes us to him. We yeah, don't meet like his we, family. We don't know anything I about mean, his personal the one, life. There's that one thing about the pot, like the somebody's somebody else's wife bakes a pie that he gets the yeah thing yeah. In and but but the, even still, that's a bribe given yeah, to him involving yeah, yeah. his his schemes yeah, rather and, than it being. And with Hadley, they don't like ever show you the, like he's got a little, little kids at home. Or the whatever. only personal knowledge you get about him is that his brother died and his brother was an asshole and he doesn't care. But he got money and that he's mad that he's gonna have to pay yeah. it to the government. Yeah, but I guess my point is they don't give them they don't want you to ha see any sort of redeeming qualities because they are they are just playing the external force putting the pressure on these people they're like 
And yes, that by the way, the be, the the uh, note that I found very interesting with what you were talking about how this movie didn't do well because of the prison industrial complex starting to grow in the late 80s and 90s. The scene in which the beating of fat ass happens, um he said like Frank Darabont said he thought a lot about how to shoot that and he thought a lot about like um you know, whether they were going to do close-ups with a bloody face and a baton hitting thing and breaking things. And he said, um, but uh, in 1992, a very, very famous video was uh, released to the world that went uh, viral and ended up causing uh, a bunch of riots in L.A. And it was the Rodney King video. Right. Yeah, yeah. And that video, to anybody who hasn't seen it or... Uh, I it's crazy if you don't know what it is, but I mean, you know, there's gaps in everyone's knowledge, but it, it's uh, a, a black motorist in LA gets pulled over by the LAPD and then is proceeded to be dragged out of his car and beaten by, I think six to eight officers with batons in a circle. And it's all captured from like an old school VHS style, uh, camcorder ha- thing. camcorder from, I don't know, 40, 40 feet, 50 feet away. That affected a lot of people watching that video. And, um, and it, I mean, you know, there's a lot we can say that things haven't changed at all. But at the time, it was the first time in my life I remember there being even a conversation about police brutality or, or anything like that. In the open, no less. In the, yeah. And, um, and it was the start of that those conversations and uh but anyways darabont was so affected by that image that he he said like as soon as it came into his head when he was thinking about this is he was like the most brutal way to shoot that is is let's give them give it some space and stay in the wide and that's why they and they're all silhouetted so you don't get an opportunity to see their faces yeah that makes it all the more horrifying and you you yeah, you do all the work where you yep. put in what he yep. looks like and everything. It, it's the same too. Not that like it's on the same. Not to compare that with the the Rodney King comments, but also like the the rape scenes where they don't actually yeah. show you any of that. They they pan off of it because at the end of the day, your brain's gonna do more work than the camera could ever do in affecting you in the way that you are going to be most affected by what's happening. Well, even in the Boggs fight or the Boggs beating. Um, they that was another thing where they ran out of time or money but in the in the original script he's thrown off the fourth floor and he lands on a laundry basket and breaks his back or whatever uh or a laundry cart um but they didn't have time to do that stunt so he then did that thing where they have the camera down a few cells down looking at the thing and he tries to get out and then is pulled off Dragged frame like yeah, yeah. like jaws pull, like i think he uses as an example he's like like jaws taking someone in underwater mm-hmm. he's like it's just zoom gone um to your to your comment on the the not a prison movie thing i i, I find that really interesting um because i got both i i i from the beginning always felt like there was more to it than just um than just being a movie about the industrial prison industrial complex, if you will. Um, but I, I think that there is both context and subtext to everything. And the context of the movie very clearly does make, in my mind, very clearly does make an argument and, or at least a statement about the state of the prison system. And I don't think that you can, I don't think that you can discount that it's set in a prison 
and it clearly comments on many of the well-known problems with the prison system, including the um, the wardens abusing their power to make money, including the inside out thing they talk about, which was a literal word for word. Like that was the name of a, of uh, an initiative, I guess different uh, initiative altogether, um, but involving prisoners, but they use a, a real life uh, initiative in the movie. So I think that, the connections are there in context that you, you, you have to, in some ways, at least consider that that is a comment that's being made in the context of the movie. But the subtext is also clearly just in general the idea of, um, what's the word they use? It's yeah, I, uh, yeah, institutionalization, and that like regardless of whether you're in prison or you work at at a grocery store or whether you're stuck in whatever the institution you're within is there is a system in place that tells you how you have to exist within the space you're in and even if you go so broad as to say society but one way or another there are rules and institutions that guide how you live your life and we're all kind of trapped in them anyways and there's a ton of subtext to that yeah no and i think that's the more like that's the more important part i don't the reason i said it wasn't a prison movie obviously it has comments about prison and and prison reform, but I think part of why it goes to the more of the institutionalization uh, is partly because... um, I mean, it's what people connect with. It's how you get people in the door, is you show them how they their life can be like that but it, yeah sure i, I guess okay, so but like i guess one of my evidence is that again that it's more about uh the institution which they make clear by the way that part of institutionalization is that you is the comfort within it is the comfort and the malaise of being in that system and mm-hmm. and um and then i like i think you essentially uh, at the peak point of comfort, you are the, you are then part of the system or are the system, right? And the whole thing is, to, um, but um, uh, the book uh, has three different prison wardens come through uh, during Andy's time, during Andy's 20 whatever years. There's three different wardens, which they, the from the first apparently draft of the screenplay was all one warden because they knew within a screenplay, like, that that would just take too much time to introduce these different people and all that stuff. But I think it also goes to the idea that it's just, he, this, he is this figure head for, for prison or for, for authority, for external force to the, to the story. And, and, um, and in that way, I guess like it's, yes, it's about prison stuff, but if it, if it was about prison, like if we really wanted to make a comment about the prison system, then you have three different people come in, all act the same way, all corrupt, all doing the thing, because then it's the system that's the issue and not the person. Right. And they do they do specifically who is it? Is it Brooks or yeah, it's Brooks talking about the library when he says that uh, if one th- if there's one thing I've learned about about prison wardens or whatever it's they're all from the same stock or something yeah um and and i I don't disagree that all of those things play a part but i think it like if you set this in a if this is a small town of which the warden is the mayor the captain is the police chief and it's like a mill town where all the workers work for one like 
where the mayor is also the owner of the mill or whatever, right? Like, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And they're keeping everybody in authority. Like, I like the the plot works point for point to that other system. We you just instead of keeping them in via walls, you keep them in economically or however whatever other structure you use. But it like the the to physically hold them there. Um, uh, but like to me, and if you can flip it that easily to somewhere else, to a completely different setting, then the movie isn't about that setting. It's about the greater meaning of what that setting is, which is the institutionalization, which is the hope which versus fear, which is all of that allegory that I've been pushing. Sure. Okay. I guess, I guess it depends on how you want to look at it. I mean, if we wanted to go very um, critical analysis and critical theory on this for a minute... Um, I mean, there, there's, there's always multiple interpretations and there's also the idea, you know, talking about death of the author and whether or not one or the other is the intention of, of what the director wants here. Um, but I, I think, I think that both points of it are equally important to some extent or another. Um, even if just for watching the movie, the the surface idea that gets you into it is you think about the prison system and you think about that. And then you, through thinking about that, you are drawn to make the other connections. But while the important point of the story, I will 100% agree, the key point is the more generally applicable how this sort of mythology or this sort of fable, if you will, applies, the morale applies to the re- morale, the moral correct pronunciation <laughs> applies to everybody in general in some form or another um you don't get there without the first one sure so you gotta have you gotta have that that story and that connection from a specific jumping off point and whether or not no the other is more important it works better as because it's specific for sure and and all everybody's like even you know people who think uh, are think of themselves as kind and noble or whatever would themselves have a uh, a fear of being a wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, and being sent to prison. Um, it, it like it, like that's a legit fear, and then <laughs> and then on top of that, not only is it that, but it prison is. Um, uh, pr- prison is very much like shown to you in the first act and the start of the second act as it is what th- th- it says on like what you believe it to be it's the worst possible place you can imagine it has all the threats the guards aren't there to protect you they're there just to keep you in line there is a pack of people who are wanting to uh, destroy do bad you. Things to you yeah do terrible things to you and there's a you know you'll make a few friends along the way or whatever (laughs) um but uh you'll find your tribe and you'll be at home with your little group yeah um i did have also an idea along going along with like the 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 idea of andy becoming the icon of hope (laughs) all right uh, here we go is um i think there's like two like there there's a bunch of like the start of the movie and his sentencing is the death of status quo Andy. And then we get new Andy 
in uh, whose birth into the prison is that is that first scene we the see the call to action if you will yeah but it's but he actually has like a full like baptism by fire hose and delousing yeah 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 and then he is this new person who stays silent his first night and all that but it, but is it getting like but is now in this environment and then of course that's mirrored with the um, the baptism-ish rebirth of him literally exiting a canal <laughs> and and falling into the creek and, uh, and the, the standing injection up. of fluids uh, yeah and being clean and yeah. and standing in in this environment and he's now he has that's him breaking free of the chrysalis stage of the like of his forming to the perfect version of himself. And he's now that, and he's now a- a- exits into the world. And who is he now? He's the free man he created in his mind uh, years ago. He is that person. He's able to uh, interact with the environment as that person. He's uh, also come to terms at this point with the biggest character flaw we know him to have, which is that he's distant and doesn't know how to connect with people. And we see him grapple with that and come to accept that he is... Um, by default, he or not by default, but by association, somewhat still guilty, um, but is able to hopefully be better as a person, aka getting read out and having this sort of like strong friendship that probably based on what we know of him, he wouldn't have had that kind of connection beforehand because he wouldn't have known how to express and connect with people in the same way yeah and the the savings he gets away was a three hundred thousand in 1966 or 67 when he gets probably like a almost a million dollars now right which is a lot but it's not necessarily like live the rest of your life super comfortably it's enough to convert to mexican pesos and build himself a hotel and a boat Uh, yeah yeah and find a way to make his own living but i i thought that was very interesting is that he was the when we met him at the start, he's a white collar guy who's living somewhat an easy life. And then at the end, he's living, quote unquote, the easy life. But what do we see him doing when we arrive at the beach? Hard labor. He's hard doing manual labor, that, but with a smile on his face. Um, and I think there's something poetic in that, not saying not to take anything away from white collar work versus blue collar work. But just but there's the, that institutionalization versus thing. the freedom. He's now working for himself or doing this for he's doing this hard work for himself versus the hard Outside work side of the system. He had previously been doing yeah. doing for the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I mean, I I didn't say it all how I wanted to say it, uh, but I, I've said everything I've wanted to say. I think I, I, I think I have, or else you've covered this uh, whatever I didn't say. So um, I'm happy to. Come I, around to our conclusion here. But just before that, I did yeah, want to bring yeah. up one little cool thing um, that I don't know if you ever learned about it in film school, uh, but uh, the the Kuleshov test, I believe it's called. Oh, yeah, yeah, the Kuleshov effect. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. So that it's it's an editing technique, but essentially I think his name is Maxim Kuleshov, Kulikov. He was uh, a, a, a Russian both. in the early, early days of uh, like experimental. Th- like 1910, 1920s. Yeah, yeah. And what he essentially found that if you have a... He used like a pop idol at the time and shot the person with a bl- the blankest expression they could have and then cut it against other things. Um, uh, Hitchcock talking about this to CBC, actually, the thing he used was a picture of him squinting 
and then a woman with a carriage and then you cut back to him smiling and you think oh what a like uh, he saw a woman and suddenly he was happy to yeah, see this like a, woman like, and her child yeah what a, he must be a very kind man seeing yeah. this woman and child and then i think he cuts it with like a car accident and then you look and then of course squinting to see a car accident smiling at the result you look like a sinister yeah yeah terrible human being but it's the same two shots the the, the original cutaway the original is just the same in single shot right of just the blank plate and then it's like looking at someone dancing looking at a i think a naked woman in the bathtub and then looking at like a baby and the premise is that we the audience put as much onto the uh performer as the performer is putting is giving to us and in I, how we cut the shots together and well, present but, but, what we imagine that the person is looking at yeah but it's not just that but it's it's that that um if i record your face right now looking at me what the audience thinks you're thinking in that shot uh, is obviously dependent on what the context we give them so the next the frame after that um which is important <laughs> i think in this movie because there's a lot of like we hold on people's close up a lot in this movie. Yeah, yeah. And I think they did a fairly masterful job of this in the edit and in and in the shooting of this on the day cuz I really felt like I understood what they were always for the most part I almost unless they didn't want me to understand, I think I understood what they were trying to have me understand all the time. And I it's just well, like even him sitting in the car, we don't know what's up. And then cut to the close up of him getting a gun out and then cut yeah, back to his yeah, face. Yeah. Then you're like, oh, now I understand what that face means. Even if you don't necessarily, even if you just got that scene without the context yeah, yeah. of the wife, like you almost can understand that he's there because he's been slighted by somebody close to and, him. And I think you would think you would know it wasn't him thinking about shooting himself, even like what you're saying, if you cut out yeah, the wife yeah. part, because the like the his eyes are fixed on like the horizon and i feel like if it if it was like a suicide thing it would be like more internal more internal yeah, yeah. he's uh, looking outward at the source instead yeah, of inward at himself exactly yeah, and yeah i don't know and i i so anyways i just i just thought that um if i wanted to demonstrate that for a class there's a lot of examples in this movie of that effect yeah, yeah, I didn't really think about that, but now that you've brought it up, going back on it, it's sort of like, and, and you know, Deacons talks all the time about how he likes to keep his lens lengths kind of close to the length of the human eye, which people, some people say is between around 50 or 55 or whatever millimeters, and he usually shoots between 28 and 85, um, and uses instead, like, how far away we are from them to sort of help and and there's a a lot of getting in close with people but at those lens lengths you're still you feel like you are the person watching it it looks it doesn't look like you're looking through a camera so you get that close personal look at their face and how they're feeling and expressing their whatever that is they're feeling in those long quiet sort of conversational moments or, you know, when they're sitting against the wall after he gets out of his month or two months in the hole or whatever, you know. Um, and I guess masterfully done in the sense that, yeah, like you don't really notice that it's being done. You just sort of understand and can continue on without thinking about it. But if you were to have to stop and think about it, like clearly they would have missed yeah. the mark. And um, 
I think that goes also to um, the narration does a lot like is obviously a major character in this thing. And um, when I went to film school, this and Goodfellas were both used as excellent examples of use of narration. And ironically, Darabont watched every every Saturday while making this movie. Frank Darabont watched Goodfellas. Oh, really? Oh, that's cool. Because he was like. If we f up this narration, <laughs> it'll like we'll lose the thread and it'll all fall apart. Well, that's like what I was saying before we started recording about how, as I was reading that script, um, you know, if Mor- Morgan Freeman to me is red, there's no other person I can imagine who could have played that role so well and sold that narration so well. And I mean, partially it's just like I would listen to Morgan Freeman narrate anything and it would probably sound good. But also, um, there's just this sort of sense that the character belongs and the story is being told with some sense of of um, intention and, and feeling to it. But having read the script uh, after watching the movie, I remember thinking as I was going through that opening narration, feeling like if I were a producer reading this, having no idea what it was, just having this thrown on my desk and like, here, check this out and see what it is. Um, the first page or two is fantastic and it hooked me. And then I got to the part where red starts narrating a whole bunch right at the beginning. And I was like, this is a hard sell. It's a hard sell to just read somebody narrating without really knowing who the character is and what they're like. And, and I don't know, I feel like within a few sentences in the movie, you get a sense of who he is as a character so that you buy into that narration. And like it could have gone two different ways. It could have literally, ta- I think, tanked it or, you know, or in this case, kind of really sold it. Yeah, uh, but uh, like I think it's na- like I don't think like famously they added narration to Blade Runner after it came out for the theatrical release. And then years later, in both, I think, the director's cut and the final cut, they removed it. Um, And because that movie doesn't need it. No, it doesn't. (laughs) But if you play Goodfellas or you play this movie without the narration, I think both of those movies are are either don't work or are considerably lesser for that. Well, I mean... I would say half of our conversations today would be a moot point if there wasn't a narration to this movie because the whole argument of this is a myth, this is myth-making, this is somebody telling a story to us and trying to create this sort of fable and this this idea of a story, that, that doesn't work if there's not a person telling us the story, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's because it, it's direct presentation, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, do you think you have to be in a particular mood to watch this movie? Yes and no. I think that you need to be, in my mind, you need to be ready for a little bit more of a... It, it's a slower ride, which doesn't bother me, but you have to be prepared for the fact that it is a movie of conversations without a lot of action. Um, and it's a little bit more emotionally heavy, and it's a little bit more... Um, like it's designed to make you feel something and if you're if you're not in the mood of watching a movie designed to make you think and feel something you might get put off from watching it versus like if you were in that space of I want to see some like upbeat exciting action movie yeah um 
Okay, I, I'm with you there. Like, I would say this is certainly like a perfectly balanced five course meal. So like, <laughs> I like it. I like you it. really do. You have to, you know, you have to eat the soup course and the whatever course, and then the main course, and then the dessert at the end is what hey. is what ties it all together. It and, all lends to itself, and you have that sweet happy ending, and it's worth it because of all the work that we've done prior to it. Uh, Tim Robbins, uh, in two different featurettes that are on the the 10th anniversary DVD, uh, suggests that this the mo- reason the quote unquote Hollywood happy ending in this movie works is because you earn it as the as a viewer and as the storytellers they've earned that ending. It's not a happy ending for the sake of having it. It's yeah. literally been earned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and this famously the screenplay stops with Red on the bus. Yeah, yeah. And then they give us the payoff of the beach scene. Which I can't imagine not having. Like, that that, that scene, that last bit was so, I don't know. This movie had me tearing up a lot, but that last ending was just so powerful. Just Without that, you kind of lose a lot of the... I mean... Uh, and I'm a fan of ambiguous endings. I love yeah. ambiguous endings, but I don't know that but this I, movie can... I, I don't think... Like, I think there's... If you want, there's an ambiguity to what are they going to do now, but like... Well, no, but it's like, I mean, does he get... I mean, there's an argument to be made that maybe he doesn't make it across the border, or maybe he gets there and like... Oh, some, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So no, like, sure, sure. You don't know for sure that they meet up, and you don't know for sure that it's a good thing that they meet up if, if you don't see it happen at the end. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I don't... I'm not a proponent of and movies needing happy endings and i'm i'm almost will almost never go on the side of you gotta wrap it up and give the audience a happy ending yeah yeah but in this instance i i think that it's necessary but uh, so but because it has that to me that just like burst like the grinch's heart growing 10 times by watching (laughs) when you get to the end of this movie um and and uh it uh like i really think that you can watch this movie any t- any mood you're depressed watch this movie it'll make you feel better you're happy watch this movie it'll make you depressed then make you feel better uh <laughs> but you know what? that that's fair that's fair like it like to me honest and like and like if i was if i like if there was a point at which like you ca- caught it on tv and you aren't gonna shut it off i would say it, it really gets humming after boggs dies yes or not die sorry I mean, uh, death, to us in the sto- death to us in the story. He no yeah. longer matters. Uh, when that, after that, to me, the the story really gets cooking, and, uh, and I, uh, I, it's just like I, I've been smiling almost this whole podcast talking about this because I, it truly is a movie that like I love the messaging, I love the idea of this film, and I, it may, it's it's so many times in my life brought me comfort even if that's a lazy sunday afternoon and why do you need comfort that already sounds great uh but when you were a 13 year old kid or whatever (laughs) or 15 that was the ideal like it was like this yeah perfect little movie to bridge you from two in the afternoon till supper time or whatever you know like it got you through that little lazy afternoon and yeah, yeah. late summer or whatever. I I don't know. I just, I, I guess I, I guess I'd f- I'd follow up slash provide a caveat to my my answer, which is that to get personal for a moment here, I uh, I don't have nearly so many sort of uh, openly emotional moments in my normal everyday life. I, I as a general rule, I'm a 
a pretty like on the level sort of, you know, I don't show a lot of sadness or tears if I'm in, you know, the presence of people and vice versa, whatever a lot. But like one of the things that has brought me around and, and, and has begun to change the way that I view interpersonal relationships and, and the way I exist in life is from watching movies and from sitting and, uh, experiencing intentionally experiencing that sort of extreme ends of various emotional components um and i'm really bummed that i never came back to this until now uh because of a silly 14 year old me's view about what the movie was um i feel like i missed out on a lot of time that i could have spent watching this movie again because now, having sat through it, it was just such a powerful experience. Even both times, having seen uh, recently, like back to back, almost like a day apart, um, it still moved me in in some really powerful ways that I sort of don't know that I would necessarily be prepared for if I wasn't like aiming to have that experience. Is I guess why I call it, but like. So not necessarily a mood, but just with intention, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, and so I guess the next question we ask, is this a rewatchable film? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think this I, is... I will continue to rewatch it now. I, I know people that watch it, like, regularly, like, not weekly necessarily anymore. But there was a time in my life where I, like, this... I think this is the movie I've seen the most in my life. Now, I haven't seen it beginning to end every single time I've seen it. Because again, like I said, I caught it on TV a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I but think I, a lot like, of people. I've owned it twice. I owned it on VHS, and then I own I owned it on DVD, and I will ultimately own it on Blu-ray. I just haven't got around to buying the Blu-ray. Four K UHD Blu-ray, uh, sure. obviously. <laughs> yeah, obviously, and get the di- digital print with it. And well, of course, um, yes. But uh, um, I yeah, it's this is one of the most rewatchable movies. Um, and I think it, it's got, to be honest, it's, it's become more rewatchable to me because the harshness in this movie by context of mo- more modern films has become less harsh. Like the, the, you know, the, it's brutal and it's, th- but it's now, but it's a subdued in, internal in context of, of things I've now seen in my life. Oh, I it, see. Like, like film not my real life hasn't been this crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't see this kind of crazy shit yeah, on the regular. But uh, but no, but it, like, I mean, um, because I would say that would be a knock against the rewatching. Like, there are some amazing movies that I just find too disturbing. The one I always reference is Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Like, I, that movie is hits me so brutally that I... I don't know if I'd be able to watch it I, too I, much. I wouldn't, like, it wouldn't be... A, it's not a rewatchable film for me. But I yeah. think it's a very watchable film. And I think if you haven't seen it and you're listening to this, you should see it. Or if you're uh, a horror fan, the movie Martyrs, which we talked about yeah. uh, on the show a long time ago. Oh, interesting. Which... Um, I watched it once and I will never watch it again because it is just so But it was worth visceral. That one. It was very worth, worth watching, yeah. but and I don't think I could put myself through watching the yeah. things that happen on screen. Uh yeah, and to, so to, but to that I think that in 2021 the the context of the brutality in this movie is rounded off enough that I think it's like 
I don't think it, and maybe that, or maybe I don't know. Maybe I've seen too much. Uh, <laughs> You're a little but, jaded, uh, perhaps. <laughs> but I think it, I think it makes this more rewatchable because the darkness isn't as dark as it once was, and the there's light, always a light, there. and the light is so light uh, at the end that it and it feels so good. It's that uh, you know, it's that big emotional uh, art hug we all need every once in a while. <laughs> Uh, that, uh, oh, I'm that I'm I... keeping that now. The emotional art hug. That's my favorite. Uh, yeah. So that that would be the last thing. And then uh, finally, like, so this is uh, you don't think you need to be in a mood. You don't. You do find it rewatchable. Um, if you are, if you were talking to someone who hasn't seen this, uh, is this a place? Is this a film you would seek out? Is this a play movie you would you would tell someone to actively go find it somewhere? hundred percent um we owned a dvd copy that was where i watched it the first time was the original cut dvd release um i do not personally own that dvd and i don't know if it even exists in my family anymore um and if you want to watch it the only places you can find it are on amazon prime in the u.s or you can rent it here uh you can rent it on youtube and you can rent it on google play but I don't think it's currently streamable freely anywhere. Um, and beyond that, you'd either have to buy a copy of it somewhere physically or a video on demand of some sort or another. And I would, I would actively say that if you haven't seen it, uh, you need, you need to watch it. I mean, it's got, it's like you, you can argue it's got its, its issues with modern, you know, views or whatever to a certain extent, but it was a movie that was ahead of its time, and it's a movie that still has a lot of relevance in a lot of ways today. And I think it's a, a really valuable seeker. I, I do think it's it. Yeah, I do think it's a seeker. I do think it's something you should seek out. I do. It was on Netflix Canada, I think, up until like a year. It ago. was for a bit. I remember seeing I, it. I literally watched it on it. So I, I um, one of my one of my rewatches. Um, so, but I now that it's not available anywhere to stream in Canada except for renting, I would spend the money and rent, rent to watch this. That's how good yeah. the movie is. Yeah. Um. And I uh, did. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is, holds up as one of my favorite movies uh, of all time. It's in you know it's in my top one hundred of personal favorite movies, and it's in the higher half of that. I would say I find it hard to rank films that I love because. There's just so many. Well, like, and it gets to like choosing between children at some point, yeah, and then it, yep, it becomes yep. like a mood that moment, or what that movie means to me now as opposed to then. And I have favorite movies for whatever day it is, or yeah, whatever yeah, the weather's yeah. like, or yeah. you know. What's your favorite movie? It's a tier. Is it's not a there's no movie. It's there's a tier of favorite yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, this is this is up there, and uh, and I'm glad that you were able to revisit through this show and uh, and find new meaning in it, and it is a movie that I would suggest revisiting every few years going forward. Oh, uh, just with the seeker thing, this movie it, like is its popularity as we discussed earlier is a the definition of a seeker. It is a movie that failed at the box office. And then people had to seek it out at the video store and then people couldn't find it because everyone was renting it and holding on to it and giving it to friends and stuff like that. And and then it became a movie. It's like in the DVD commentaries on the 10th anniversary that are like retrospectives, 
they talk about how this movie has um, followed a similar path to It's a Wonderful Life, uh, the Frank Capra Christmas movie. Yeah, I, I know of it. <clears throat> that movie bombed when it went into theaters, but it, it be, it's become one of the most enduring classic Christmas movies of all time. And but part of the reason was because it because it bombed so bad, it it was really cheap for the TV networks to buy it, and then so a bunch of the different networks bought it and, and then ran it all the time. Ran, well, ran it every December, and then slowly but surely, kids grew up watching this every year. It played on different channels, different days through December, and then all of a sudden it became this staple that every year it played, and all of, and and people. And because it was a beautifully constructed, crafted film, it found its audience uh, eventually kind of thing. And that's that's what this movie did as well. I, I, I kind of love how that's clearly a, a component of the, of, the, of the art and the industry of, of film is that there's this whole segment of movies that are these huge hits the moment they come out and so many of them are big for a while and then they fall by the wayside and sometimes they they stick around and and sometimes those major big you know big movies don't but but there's this entire world where like one accidental factor or like one small decision that somebody who didn't make the movie made suddenly leads to it becoming such a sensation like with this or that christmas movie where like you know a couple of networks bought it because it was cheap and the filmmakers got lucky and suddenly the next thing you know it's like generic or generally loved you know and I, and i don't know if this sold to networks because it was so popular on home video or if it sold because they were trying to sell it for whatever they could to make back money because this movie didn't in its initial run didn't make its money which back. 25 million isn't a lot by today's standard but in 1994 25 million was pretty high budget for it was a movie like this. but you got to think about the next year either 94 or 95 uh water was made which was the first hundred million dollar movie yes that's true so um, it, it wasn't like it wasn't like today where a 25 million dollar movie is almost it, low budget it would but it, it wasn't top it would have been half spending. the budget of like a, what you would expect a ma- like a major hollywood movie to yeah get. and that's like but when this movie came out morgan freeman had done driving miss daisy and was like you know he had won an oscar already yeah yeah but he wasn't he wasn't like you couldn't people weren't hanging movies on morgan freeman's shoulders nor tim robbins so it's not like like there was other people's attached like there costner was like looking at this movie for the oh, wow. tim robbins role i could not see that no neither could i but i even like tom cruise was sniffing around this what? movie maybe even just as a like on a producer side sure yeah um but there was like a bunch of things i read that i was like that's interesting and would have made a very different movie but probably would have made more money uh, because there was a name that people were. Well, I mean, more, uh, not initial, the Morgan Freeman. I, I would, let me say initial money, not yeah. the Morgan Freeman role. But if you replace Tim Robbins with Kevin Costner, and then it's Kevin Costner opposite Morgan Freeman, uh, suddenly, who, suddenly people would who probably I think have, right around this time they would have teamed up in Robin Hood, uh, Prince of Thieves because they were oh, both. Oh yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, but and that movie made a ton of money. Uh, <laughs> well there you go but um, take it to success yeah and i think that would have been part of it i think i think it but it wouldn't have been the film and it wouldn't have had the endearing like no. this i mean T- tim robbins perfor- uh, performance here was just so spot on i mean from the first time you see him and it's just that 
sort of medium close up in the courtroom where he's talking to the lawyer and you can you can sense that sort of like we've been over this I'm saying it over and over again but he's got that quiet sort of introspective uh, internal demeanor and way of speaking that suggests the character perfectly like I, I don't know he just he he nailed he nailed it see I think he has a really and it, and actually we brought up Hitchcock earlier I think he has this kind of cool Anthony Perkins vibe who is Anthony Perkins is the uh, the he's the psycho and psycho right yeah. um, he has this innocence that if you play it as innocence or play it as purity it plays like Tim Robbins in this movie but also but there's you, like he's there's this undertone right behind the eyes i feel that if you wanted to like he doesn't with, blink a lot with score and with a few other things if you wanted to make andy seem like a psychopath it can be done like well even even like, just to imagine like putting like a menacing score off of him walking through all the other inmates tossing a rock up in the air like how much of a psychopath do you have to be sort to of be, meandering to be yeah that man in the park when you're in between all these brutal killers well like, and and there's also that you, you know that that idea <laughs> that idea of of like uncertainty of innocence like we we know that he's a trustworthy narrator and that the movie all of the film language is leading us to believe that he's innocent even if the story leaves room for doubt and part of that in my mind about why there was any room for doubt is whenever there's a moment where he's called upon to either say he's innocent or say why he's there you know he's like the conversation with uh tommy where he asks what he's in for and he's like oh i'm innocent don't you know everyone here is and whatever and he's got this funny smile and just the way he's looking it like clearly seems like like he is joking but also like it seems like he's hiding something all the time yeah and even though everything about the movie makes you trust and believe him i still am suspicious of him because he always feels like he has a secret Tim, well, funny enough, Tim Robbins said he played every scene like he had a secret. Oh, well, it and came he was through. Like, and I did, because the whole time he's, like, from, what, year three, when he gets the rock hammer, or year two. Oh, yeah, he's, he's been digging the hole. He's been digging the hole and distributing the dirt on the yard. Yeah, he has had a secret this whole time. Oh, I like that. It's just that his secret isn't what we, the audience, think his secret is, but we read that he has a secret, so whatever he does to produce that like that's just a brilliant job of acting and that's yeah, yeah like if i was a young actor that would be a performance i would look at to go oh that's how you play depth yeah right? like, yeah that's yeah. how you play the the surface level flat sort of emotionlessness with that sort of something underneath that you yeah. can't pinpoint and then and if you have that like kind of stoicism a little bit that he has those wry smiles become full-tooth grins and and i feel like like, stoicism is a hard one because it's so easy to overplay or or throw to a place where it becomes cliche the it's so easy to do it i don't want to say wrong but like cliche is the best thing i can say there's like so much of a cliche in stoicism that if you're not careful and well crafted in how you do it it can just come across as kind of as kind of false or shallow in its presentation and it it this this is a masterclass on how not to be shallow in your stoicism 
Um, I will also now just uh, as a meta thing about the whole podcast. Oh, here we go. Just kind of point out that um, we've done a regular ending kind of twice now and then just kept talking about this movie. And I think that goes to show what this movie is <laughs> in a way. Yes. I mean, this went on even longer than the last one. And I, I am happy. I'm happy to say that I think I don't know how you guys feel about these longer episodes. I'd love to hear about it of course but i have a feeling that that's going to be a little bit more consistent and it's going to be a little bit less around that one hour mark going forward but um but like clearly there's more to be said about this movie um and we could con- sit here and continue to talk about it but we are now over two hours oh. um so it is time to wrap that up and i think the the best way to do that is uh, what's your rating mike well, I've given this a uh, little bit of thought, and um, I'm going to give this 12 loads of laundry. Oh, wow. That's that's a lot of laundry. Um, are we talking big loads of laundry, or are uh, like we talking the like the small? Yeah, the yeah, industrial right. like prison laundry loads. Oh, there you go. All right. Well, that's yeah, yeah. a pretty solid ranking, yeah, if that's I do like, say. It's got to be, yeah, that's what, like 13, uh, well, like 30, 40 regular loads? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Well... All right. I mean, I, I think I'm in the same vein here when I say that I'd give this at least 55 pocketfuls of concrete dust, probably. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's, well, hell of a rating. Yeah, yeah. 55. Wow. Okay. That's like that's like a quarter of his trip, probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay, man. Well, uh, this was a lot of fun. It was. Thank you guys for listening. Um, we're always very happy to have you here. If you want to keep up with what our schedule is and what uh, is upcoming, you can check out our Instagram or our Twitter. One of them is at Cinematics Cast. One of them is at Cinematics Podcast. I should really look it up before I do this next episode so I don't have to say this again, but I get them mixed up. Anyways, we're on both of those platforms. We'll be posting uh, what our schedule is, what's upcoming, all that good jazz. Um, you can also uh, find us pretty much anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Uh, we would love it if you could give us a five-star review. Uh, if you like the show, it really helps us and our viewing potential. Uh, and until next time, we'll catch you guys later. Mm-hmm.